You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word and the gift of your Holy Spirit and the many promises that you give us in your word that when your word is proclaimed, that when your word is studied, that when your word is read and heard, that Jesus would be revealed to us and that the, uh, the message of salvation would come to bear on us and that your word has a purpose, changing and transforming hearts and lives of those who are submitted and surrendered to Jesus as Savior and King. So Father, um, today ask that you would do just that. Help our hearts to surrender uh, more so to Jesus as our crucified, risen, and returning King. And help our hearts um, to think about what it means to be committed to the gospel, to the family that uh, you have drawn around the cross, and to the mission that you have given us to seek and to save the lost. Father, I pray that you would do that. And then some pray, lastly, Father, that you would just give me energy and clarity in these moments. Help me to speak your words. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. 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 So, fifth and final installment of this series, okay? Within a Yard of Hell is the name of the series because our mission statement um, as most of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with now, comes from an old church-planting missionary to three different continents named C.T. Studd, who said, some people wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Nothing wrong with church bells, nothing wrong with being comfortable, but the idea is, behind what he said, that he would trade all the comfort in the world um, for all the discomfort of chasing down those who are lost and seeing them saved. And that would be a, my summary. So after the, over the last four weeks, as we have kind of dove into um, everything that, that is under that, or that we have attached to that statement, the within a yard of hell statement, we, we, we've examined what it means to be commissioned here at the well, right? Um, we, we've examined what it looks like to have a vision about being transformed and a mission to run that rescue mission. Um, we want to exist within a yard of hell, right? Not within the yard of hell like in, in hell. Somebody asked me that question. I was like, that's a really good question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. No, I don't want to live in hell, a yard from hell. So last four weeks, we started with commissioned. Right? You might remember, we have been commissioned by Jesus, our crucified, risen, returning Savior, to do what? To make disciples who make disciples, who make more disciples within a yard of hell. Our commission, literally, when you're looking at Matthew 28 and, and, and chapter 16 as well, our commission uh, is, is to be kind of like a special ops team that literally assaults the gates of hell for the salvation of lost people. So that was week one. 
as we examine what it meant to be commissioned. And then we just got, the next week we did a little bit of a deep dive into our name, right? The well. Uh, we want to be the well within the yard of hell. It rhymes. It's good. I probably could have never made it as a rapper, but maybe as a poet who didn't know it. Yeah. Most of us here, I think as, as we studied John 4 that week and that story of the woman at the well that Jesus intentionally goes and meets, I think most of us that call this church our home, I think we identify pretty strongly with that woman at the well. Um, I think we know what it's like to be the outcast, to be the prodigal, to be marginalized, uh, to feel uh, maybe so ashamed of ourselves and our sin uh, that we would rather avoid the religious crowd at all costs. But I think we also know, we also know what it's like to encounter Jesus in the midst of that, right? That's, that's the beauty of the story. We know what it's like to encounter Jesus in the midst of our deepest shame and, and, and our filthiest guilt, right? In the midst of our isolating ourselves from everything that we think will harm us like a religious crowd. I think we find, when we find Jesus in that, when he finds us in that, it's a transformative encounter. I think we can say with the woman at the well, and we can also say with the people from her town, if you remember right, she came out in the morning, in the afternoon, a woman who was trying to avoid the religious crowd, and she, she went back to town, a woman totally changed and transformed, now encounters the entire city and says, come see this man who told me everything about myself, I think he's the Messiah. I think we would say with her and with those people from that town that we now believe in Jesus. Why? Because we've heard his voice personally. I've been fond over the years of saying the last thing that anybody needs is to hear Joe's voice. What we each need is to hear the voice of Jesus. If I can help to be a pipeline to that, to usher that, then it's a privilege for me. But you need not hear my voice. You need to hear the voice of Jesus. And I think we all identify with that desire to hear Jesus for ourselves. Next week, we looked at uh, vision after that. Vision. Uh, vision is something that keeps us moving forward, right? It's like a flashlight. Keeps us moving forward when it seems like we are surrounded by darkness. And when it feels like, you know, it's like when, you, when it feels like you're kind of surrounded by all the, the mushroom clouds of attack from Satan, sin, death. When the darkness closes in around you, what keeps you moving forward is a vision, like a flashlight in the darkness that points you in the right direction so that you don't wander around in circles or get stuck in the mud. So we examined our vision, that flashlight. For us, the way we say it is that we are a family, right? We're, we're a family of diverse, broken people being formed by the message of the gospel. That's who we are. And the picture that we see in the distance is very similar to that, but it's a little bit more crystal clear. That image in the distance is that we want to be a transformed family. You could say a transforming family. 
constantly being transformed. It's not like there's a state of arrival here on earth. It's all in flux, in continuation. But we say transformed family. A mission-engaged family. Engaged in the mission of seeking to save those who are lost. A a God-glorifying family. A family of believers who seek to bring God the attention and the glory in everything we think, say, and do. That was vision for us. And then last week, we examined mission. Right? We kind of dove down into what it actually looks like, what it actually means to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Uh, we, we have a mission, right? And it's central to everything we do. And the way that I think I kind of tried to cast the picture for us last week as I talked about it, um, is that we are like a, a, like a wartime uh, military brigade, maybe. Um, I never served in the military, so I hope I use the terminology right. Like a wartime military brigade. One that actively, not passively, but actively labors and fights to take back spiritual ground. A spiritual ground in, in the hearts and the minds of lost people who have been controlled by our enemy for so long. What are we doing in the midst of that? We, we want to seize the kingdom of heaven by force, right? We recognize that the gates of hell, I think I said last week, actually when you, when you look at the scriptures, the gates of hell as the church assaulted, the gates of hell look like cardboard box, one of those little cardboard box forts you make when you're a kid, right? Under the crushing blows of like long-range missiles, you might say. You think about dropping a long-range missile on a cardboard box fort. It's like absolute demolition, destruction, right? Annihilation is the picture. That's the picture you get in the scriptures when we think about what it means for the church, us, people, to assault the forces of hell, the gates of hell. And, and here we would say we have like four... Long-range missiles. Right? We have four of them. If you're really going to be on this mission, this is the way we have defined it here. We run a rescue mission within a yard of hell with four long-range missiles. We share the gospel. Right? We plant disciples. We train leaders, and we multiply missionaries. You're all giggling at me. You'll never forget what I just said, though, will you? You might forget the words, but you'll always remember the pastor going, and you'll remember that those missiles are attached to mission. If we're going to run around and say we're running a rescue mission within a yard of hell, there may be other ways that you could say it could be done. Those are the four biblical definitions we've tried to capture. Why is a good question. Why did you capture it that way? Why did the elders say this is the way we want to describe it? The reason why. We were asking the question, how do you take someone from being dead in their sin to being a full, believing, multiplying believer. How do you take them from point A 
to point B, to where then they would start again, right? And the answer for us was those were the four basic, big, broad category steps that became our missiles. Got to share the gospel. People ain't going to come up out of that grave unless the gospel gets shared and hearts get renewed. Once they're up out of that grave, they're looking for a home, right? Now you got to plant disciples in a specific local church body. Figure out who they are, how they're wired, get them serving, help them grow, get them in community, so on and so forth. After you've planted that disciple, and they're like, yeah, this is my church family, this is my church home. I'm not bouncing around the 10 different churches anymore. I'm here. Call you family. No matter how dysfunctional we get, right? Once you get there, then there's a crossover to training people as leaders. We're going to train you to lead all the way from cleaning toilets to preaching or whatever else you can think of, right? You know, train leaders is the next step. Last one is multiplying missionaries. At some point, a disciple has to figure out, this is not all about me. God has called me to make other disciples. So we wanted a process that was easily defined and fairly easily communicated that was biblical and also fit just some of the growth chart when you think about it, from being dead and dead to being fully alive in Christ and reproducing more disciples. So those, those are our four long-range missiles. Sharing the gospel, planting disciples, training leaders, multiplying missionaries. And here's the thing, I believe that against that kind of assault, I think with, with those kinds of missiles, the gates of hell are absolutely crumbling. My cardboard box can't stand against that. Because they're supernatural weapons. There is one threat in the midst of all this. And that's where we're headed today. It's one threat. Uh, you could also look at it positively and say there's actually an opportunity. So, for the negative folks in the room, think about it as a threat. For the glass half full folks in the room, think of it as an opportunity. So I gave us both different ways of thinking about this. The problem with me is I can think about it both ways. I'm an absolute wreck, right? So, you think of it however you would like. Um, before we launch a, a full-scale assault on the gates of hell, uh, when you think about this threat or this opportunity, um, is you've got to make sure you're fighting the right battle. So the threat is, if you're not fighting the right battle, you're going to lose. The opportunity is, let's find the right battle and fight it. Well, churches, you know, have been known for ever since its inception, if not from the beginning of the Bible, God's people have been known to fight. <laughs> I mean, it would have been interesting to be with Joshua, I think. I think it would have been fun to have been with David, one of his mighty men, maybe. Or even just a tag along to the mighty men, because I'm not sure I would have made the mighty men cut. And those images uh, get my attention. But the reality is, <laughs> all over God's people, over the Bible, over the church, you know, we don't always fight very fair, we don't always fight very well. Sometimes we fight the wrong battles. Values is what helps us to fight the right battle. Values also help us to fight the same battle together. Oftentimes when you find division in a church, family, or any family for that matter, a lot of times we spend so much time talking about, well, this is, this is my vision, or this is my vision, this is where I'm trying to... And so the issue oftentimes isn't so much the surface and that picture of vision, although it's important. Um, division means two visions. That's what di and vision means. Whenever I see division happening, I just go, duh, vision. 
Duh, right? What's underneath of that is an issue of values, what you actually value, right? I, I don't know if I have to illustrate it much more, um, but off my notes for a moment, it comes to my mind that a, a way to maybe um, illustrate this uh, might be just in the TV shows that my wife and I like to watch, right? Um, maybe our vision together is to watch a certain amount of hours of TV a week. And, um, but the problem is, is we don't like watching the same TV shows. Let's say that's not true because we actually do. So I'm just building a, a, a fake illustration. Um, but let's just say that we don't like watching the same TV shows. So we wind up, but we want to watch them together. So we wind up watching way too much TV that week. Division has happened at that point, right? We're not following the path that we had designed there. Uh, it's because underneath it, we don't value the same thing. I value a certain kind of a show. She values a certain kind of a show. Also, in the midst of that, we value being together. So that's a good thing, win-win, right? Values are an important piece of the puzzle when you're talking about fighting the same fight together or fighting the right fight. You need to choose which mountaintop you're going to die on. It's a story my mom would tell me when I was a kid all the time. She'd say, you have to learn to let some things roll off your back, number one. Number two, you probably ought to decide whether that battle is worth fighting. My mom didn't always say a lot of wise things because she was a pothead and she drank too much whiskey. Um, but when she did say something wise, it was probably because she smoked pot. <laughs> Hope you can get the joke. When she would say that, though, you need to learn which mountaintop to die on. You can catch that image, right? Don't want to die on the wrong mountaintop. So you got to choose the right mountain to die on. Otherwise, you begin to fight the wrong battle. And then what happens is you might wind up losing the entire war. So the question for yourself might be this. What battle are you fighting today? You might write that down. I'm hoping that somewhere as we talk about the different values of mountaintop, mountaintop experiences for our church, that uh, the Lord might connect the dots for you. What battle are you fighting today? What, what mountaintop are you attempting to take for the kingdom of heaven? In the midst of that, what are your blind spots? Those are questions that revolve around the topic of values, right? Mountaintop values. And here at the well, what I think our elder team has identified for a number of years is basically three mountaintop values. So you can maybe envision them like a three mountaintop range. There's three mountains in that range. And they're broad, and values should be fairly broad. Uh, for us, uh, we say... Um, that we value the gospel, we value the family, and we value the mission. That's our three mountaintops. We would say we would die on those mountaintops. We would fight for those mountaintops with every ounce of our energy, every ounce of resources we have. We want to funnel into those mountaintops, taking those mountaintops, you might say. So let's look at the first one, the gospel. We value the gospel. Think about that as a mountaintop. What do we mean when we say this? What do we mean when we say that we value the gospel? What does it look like to practically live out that kind of value so that it's not just mere words on a piece of paper? Well, Romans 1, 16-17 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So, so when we say that we value the gospel, when we say that we will fight on that mountaintop for the gospel, well, when we say that we are united by the gospel, what we're saying is we're saying that we are committed to the message of salvation for everyone who trusts in the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, right? Think about 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, through 11, Apostle Paul here says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What do you think Paul thought was most important? The gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what did he deliver that he had received? He says... That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, uh, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I love this line. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So when we say that we value the gospel, when we say that we fight on the mountaintop of the gospel, when we say that we are united by the gospel, what are we saying? We're saying that we are committed to preaching, to, to receiving to standing upon, to being saved by, to holding fast to the message of the crucified, risen, and returning Jesus. And by the grace of God, each one of us can say, right along with the Apostle Paul, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. So I feel like I could preach that verse for a long time because there's a lot behind what Paul is saying there. I am am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. That sounds like a man who has been living in the tension between the here and now and the not yet. The Romans 7 and the Romans 8 put side by side, which is the way that it is in Romans. Mind blower, right? And I love Christians who are like, I don't think the Apostle Paul was talking about himself in Romans 7. It's fine. Explain it away all you want. I disagree wholeheartedly. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Simultaneously, a full-blown sinner and a full-blown saint. It is what it is. And I love how Romans 8, 1 is sandwiched in between both ends of the spectrum. From the beginning of Romans 7 to the end of Romans 8. 
I want to apply theology to your life. I want to apply the gospel to your life in a way that actually sets you free and doesn't recreate the wheel of bondage that we humans are so good at. Stand on the gospel. Preach the gospel. Receive the gospel. Be saved by the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel, knowing that along with Paul we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. And the beauty of that is that when my father saved me, and when your father saved you, when our father saved us, he never saved us to leave us. Not just personally and relationally, but he never saved us to leave us in the deep, dark pit he found us in. Now, you might look out across the room and you might go, hey, man, old Joe Nelson, man, it seems like he's moving along a lot faster than I am in my sanctification and my growth. Well, really, he's just been at it a lot longer because he's twice my age, right? <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. You're right. Yeah. I just think sometimes what we do is we, we wish we had somebody else's journey, right? Or we judge ourselves by other people's journey. And go back to this passage. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Growing in the gospel is slow. Oftentimes, we want it to be like a gazelle. But really, we're like turtles. Right? And that's not original with me. I think I read it in Porterbrook a long time ago. And it set me free. How do you eat an elephant? Right? You guys have heard me say this probably a thousand times. One bite at a time. <laughs> so you eat it in one bite, you're going to die. The problem for legalists is legalists want to eat it in one bite. And that's why they're dying inside all the time. And the outside looks so clean, but on the inside, an absolute wreck and a mess. Bondage, no freedom. The gospel sets us free from that. So practically speaking, when it comes to the gospel, we're going to value the gospel. We put our money where our mouths are. When we apply the gospel to our own personal growth, continual repentance, like specific repentance, then it spreads out to your ministry um, among the church family, and then from there spreads out to your involvement in society. So when it comes to valuing the gospel, you got to continue applying the gospel to your own war against your own sin. Not somebody else's sin. Uh, and also not your like, perceived idea of the world's sins. It starts with you and I specifically waging war against our own sin. And then you get motivated by the gospel to serve inside a really stinky, dirty sheep pen. Anybody ever seen a sheep pen? I mean, <laughs> there ain't nothing clean about it, okay? It's hard. It's just really hard. And it's messy. And it should be. You know why? My one single basic answer is, not in heaven yet. This ain't heaven. I, and I don't want to try trading this for that. This is preparing me to go there. This is preparing me for the beauty of what heaven's going to really be like. I can't wait to go there. 
I look forward to I long for heaven. There's no filth. There's no filthy me. And there's no filthy you. Get it? There's no filthy us. Perfect and we're clean. Once and for all. The prayer of Psalm 51 will be fully, fully experienced at that point. From there, after you've been serving sheep, stinky sheep inside the church family, the gospel motivates you to wash those filthy feet. Then from there, you begin to wage war against all things unholy in society. You stand against things like sexual slavery, racial, ethnic. <gasps> he said racial. Let's not even argue. Like, why? Once again, you fight the wrong fight. Racial, social, economic, injustice. I think if we learned in our culture sometimes to uh, highlight what we actually agree about, Oh, man, maybe we'd start fighting the right fights. Again, the gates of hell look like a cardboard box. Economic injustice, murder of the unborn, school systems that attempt to undermine the gospel with our children. There's all sorts of things in our culture that we can fight against. When we say that we value the gospel, it begins... And continues in our own personal growth first, moves out into our ministry within the church, moves out with the church into our social involvement. That's what it means to value the gospel in my best estimation from the scriptures. A second mountaintop is we value the family, right? We value the family. Now, if I were to say we value the family as in mom, dad, kids, and so on and so forth, it would be true. We do. It's not necessarily primarily the way we're saying we value the family. We're saying it in a much broader category which encompasses families, singles, individuals, widowers, so on and so forth, right? Capture that? We're talking about the church family when we talk about family. And again, we want to live this value out. We want to live this thing out practically so it's not just mere words on a piece of paper, right? Acts 2, 42-47, this is where we go to root our theology of this family value. Acts 2, 42-47, here's what it says. It says, The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I know I've referenced this passage a number of times in this series already, but this is the core passage for this value. And it is something that has continuously shaped our image of what it means to be a church family. When we say that we value the family, when we say that we fight on this mountaintop of the family, right? When we say that we are absolutely united by this, the church family, that doctrine. What we're saying is that we're saying that we are committed to being a church family that does what? Looks like the one we see in the book of Acts. And that key core passage is the best description I can give you. There's another one in chapter 4 as well, but we don't have time to go there. When this becomes your value, 
When this becomes your commitment, then you and I will be united. We'll be united with other brothers and sisters. In our devotion to what? We're devoted to sitting under the regular teaching of the Bible, right? As we saw in the passage. Uh, we're devoted, committed to practicing weekly fellowship, service, generosity, praise, communion, and, and celebration of the lost being saved, baptized in the church family. Those are the things we're committed to if we say we value the family. Look with me now at Hebrews 10. It's another core passage. I don't think I've actually referenced this one yet in this series, but this has been one that's been core for us for a long time when we talk about this value. Hebrews 10, 23-25 says this, says, Let us hold fast, hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So that confession of hope, we can hold on to it without falling down, without wavering, without falling off the cliff, because the one named God, the one named Jesus, promised us something, and the promise that he gives is faithful because he's faithful. So in light of that, as you're holding on to that confession of faith, what does he say next? You'd think he'd say something like, pull your bootstraps up and don't sin no more. Well, he didn't go there. <laughs> That's not where he went. <laughs> So he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's a really different picture than the church. And I think especially when you got like, all of us have this tendency towards legalism, right? But legalism is not being stirred up towards love and good works. Legalism is being stirred up to just do better because that's bad. Okay? That's, that's the core message. Well, what he's saying here is hold on to him who promised because he's faithful. And as you hold on to him together, let us stir one another up. You stirring up a big old pot of really juicy good stew. You stir one another up to love and good works. That, that's, that's, the, that's the ingredients in the pot. Stir one another up to love and good works. What's he say next? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Is there a microphone I can drop? Oh, I've done that before and y'all yell at me, right? Not even having it. Can you all just give me like a broken one that I can drop every once in a while? That'd be kind of cool. Let me read this again. It is a microphone drop, okay? I mean, you and I have to deal with this because it's right there in the scriptures, okay? Um, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You would think, you would think, and I believe the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, and it doesn't matter what you believe on that one, it could be anybody, come some unnamed author, it's fine, not a big deal. Whoever wrote this, way back in the day, had some issues with folks who didn't think they needed to meet together as believers. There was a habit building but you would think he wrote it to America. But you would think. You look all around America, and it's like, I don't like that place. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here for a while. I'm going to go over there. Oh, I'm mad at him. Oh, he said this. Oh, she did that. While well, I gossip the entire time. Hey, good for you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you ought to just stop bouncing around and find a place to stay. 
for a while. And while you're there, maybe you ought to stop gossiping, pointing the finger at everybody else's sin, and trying to create all this shiny new little stuff on the outside. And maybe while you're there, you ought to encourage one another, as the passage says, to stir up one another to love and good works. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the promise is the day. The day that's drawing near. The end is near. Our Messiah is going to come back. And his clothes are drenched in blood. And he's on a big old beautiful, I think Arabian stallion, my mom would argue. And he's got tattoos. Even if you're against tattoos, I really don't care. I think it's a tattoo. King of kings, Lord of lords. A sword coming out of his mouth, lightning bolts for eyes. That's my king, he's a warrior. He's going to come back, going to lay waste to all that is wrong once and for all. And just say, You, you who have been meeting together, stirring one another up to good works, you who have been encouraging each other consistently, you who are part of my family, you come with me. We're going to go somewhere where it's perfect and there's no more tears, there's no more sin, there's no more filth. I just annihilated your enemies once and for all. Can't wait. I see, when you, when you start looking forward to, to heaven as it truly is, rather than thinking that this is some kind of heaven, I mean, riding my Harley down the highway at 90 is, is I shouldn't have said that. Well, somebody will probably come after me because it's a sin, and it probably is, so, probably ought to be careful. But hey, when I'm riding my Harley down the highway, there's something that feels about like heaven to me. Oh, really close. So close I ran my bike out of gas the other day, not paying attention. And you ever get there where you're just enjoying something so much? Like, oh, I enjoy this food, or oh, I'm really enjoying these movies, or I'm enjoying the walk I'm taking, the bird singing, or I don't know what it is that brings you to that place. You're enjoying something so much that it's almost like just takes you out of the moment. It's not, it's not like escape theology, like you're just escaping from all the bad things, but you're, you're enjoying something so much it's like, oh, I think heaven's going to be something like this. Yeah, the chunk of steak I ate Friday night might be pretty close to that, too. I love how God gives us a little taste sometimes of heaven, but if we're not careful, we try to make this our heaven. I think I've already had that kind of as a theme today a bit, so... Maybe we need to hear that for some reason. I don't know how that's going to speak to you, but it's speaking to me. So, if we say we value the family, we say we fight on the mountaintop of the family, united by the family, what are we saying? We're saying that we are committed to standing firm on a confession of hope. And that confession of hope is in the person and the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Christ, right? And not only that, but because of that confession of faith, then what is our commitment now? How do we practically actually get after this picture, according to Hebrews? Well, practically speaking, we say we value the church family. And let me, say, let me ask you this. If you don't value the church family, you don't value Jesus' bride. I don't think I want to go to war with a husband when I say... I don't think your bride is all that hot. I'm sorry. At that point, Lecrae says hell is hotter. Yeah, something like that. 
My point being, <laughs> oftentimes we like to look at Jesus' as bride and go, man, she's so ugly. I can't be a part of that. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Oh, really, you do. I, I'm, I want popcorn. <laughs> popcorn, and I think at that point I'd probably drink a Diet Coke. And I, and I want to be able to sit on the sidelines when Jesus comes back on that horse and says, oh, you did not like my bride. Mm-hmm. It's a dangerous day. <clears throat> so if you say you value the family, according to Hebrews, um, we'll be committed to gathering regularly, other brothers and sisters in Christ, for the purpose of building each other up, encouraging one another, standing firm in the faith, looking forward to the experience of the promise of heaven. Third mountaintop, the mission. Now, here's the thing. We've talked about mission all the way through for the last five weeks. Everybody agree? Can you just say, I agree? Okay, do you really agree, though, or are you just doing it because I told you to? Oh, man. Heather, Heather, by the way, you get the first member plaque from Hair Forward. And she's like, yes. <laughs> this is an inside joke for years. We value the mission, so we have talked about it enough for sure. Uh, but I'm going to touch on it for a few brief moments and we'll be done. Uh, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say we value the mission? I mean, we talk about what the mission is, so on and so forth. We're going to get there. What does it look like, though, to, to like practically live that thing out? Not just mere words on a piece of paper. A couple of passages here that you've already heard throughout this series, but I want to take a moment just finally in this final portion and go, okay, let's talk about it one more time. Right? It's okay to repeat things, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I got seven kids and a couple of grandbabies now, and you got to repeat some things to them. And my wife has got to repeat a lot of things to me. You can ask her. So, I, you know, we can all use it. Luke 19, 9 through 10, one of my favorite places. Jesus, spending time with this wee little man named Zacchaeus, right? Task collector. Reminds me of Joe Pesci and Goodfellas, if you ask me. Somebody else might have a different image, but a task collector nonetheless. Coming with the baseball bats, yo. Got the 38 in the pocket. Come give me your money, sucker. <laughs> Jesus comes and he's talking to Zacchaeus and he's spending time in his home. And right after Zacchaeus repents of his sin, what does Jesus say? He says, today, salvation has come to this house since he, meaning Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. And this last piece, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Point here, Jesus' mission was to look for the lost, call them to repentance, and offer them eternal life. Sidebar, are you looking for the lost? Are you calling them to repentance, right? And are you offering them eternal life? But a number of you lately having this conversation with, love it. It's one of my favorite conversations. Like, okay, here's how I'm kind of getting after this. What do I say next? And how's this working? Pray for this person. Yeah, it's great. Love that. And that goes everywhere from the, everywhere from the, what do you call it, the government house downtown to the, the fields and the co-ops, right? I mean, it's, there are lost people everywhere in our community. You'd be looking for him, calling to repentance, offering eternal life. John 20, 21 is another passage. Immediately following the resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, hey, peace be with you. Catch this. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Hold on to that. Look at Acts 1, 8. Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
You put those two verses together, they're kind of like a baton pass. That's, what the, that's what's happening. It's basically Jesus basically saying, hey, here's the mission. Take it and run with it. Right? Love that. So this mission that you have witnessed me doing, you've seen me do it, you've engaged in it with me. You see me running this rescue mission here on earth. It's now your mission. And I'm sending you out now. Just like my Father sent me here. And I'm sending you in the power of my own spirit. I'm giving my spirit to you. Not in your own strength. In the strength of the spirit you will do this. Continue this mission that my Father gave me. Look for the lost. Call them to repentance. Offer them eternal life. Oftentimes in evangelism we like to turn it into like three steps. And, and it's great for us Christians to memorize some of the high points of sharing the gospel. But then we oftentimes turn flesh and blood human beings across from us into projects. And we expect stuff to happen as soon as I hit point three and pray the sinner's prayer and then mark it down on my little card. And we, and we dehumanize people in evangelism. Remember they're human. Complex and you and I are not the Holy Spirit. You and I do not know when the time's going to come when God's going to reach down, pull out the old heart, and drop the new heart in. Our job is to be faithful, patient, and kind. Right? Because it's the patience and kindness of God that brings men to repentance. We're just mouthpieces. That's our job. So, be faithful. Look for the lost. Call them to repentance. Offer them eternal life. And the Apostle Paul then explains more to that, and I think I shared this passage the last couple of weeks as well. I want to head there again just for a moment. Romans 10, 13-15. He says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a great proclamation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. John Piper preached a sermon on this, and he just turned it around backwards. I think I said this maybe last week. I think I made fun of the homeschoolers. I'm sorry, homeschoolers. Just so you know, I was homeschooled. So I have a right to pick on our clan, Okay. I was, seriously, homeschooled, all the way through. And I got stories for you sometime if you want to talk about it. Um, mess me up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, it did. Look at me. Anyways, you read this passage backwards, and that was the whole joke, right? You spin records backwards. The demons come flying out. No, it's just it, it, the way that the Greek was written here, the way that it was written, if you turn it around backwards, you kind of get a, you get a pathway, right? People who preach the good news, they have beautiful feet. They're beautiful people. Um, they have to be sent. Then they have to preach so that people can hear. So that those people who have heard can now believe. So that once they believe, they can call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they can be saved. That's the backwards. Um, that gives us a process for sharing the gospel. I'm going to say I'm going to try one more time, right? First, you've got to see them feet as beautiful. You've got to understand that God has called everyone to this beautiful work of evangelism, sharing the gospel. That's first. Second, you've got you to know that God sent you. 
If you don't think God is sending you, we gotta, we got to stop there for a little bit and let's figure out why you don't believe that. You need to be sent. Now you're being sent to preach. And you're preaching the good news. And people actually have to hear it, right? So it's not like you just go stand on the street corner with your bullhorn, repent or die and go to hell, right? It's not that. You've got to preach. People got to hear. Once they hear, they got to believe. Once they believe, they call on Jesus. And once they do, they get saved. That's our practical way of getting after this mountaintop. Like the mission we've been sent to do is to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every lost person we can find. So I think it seems if we say we value the mission, we say we fight on the mountaintop of the mission, right? We say that we're united by this mission. Then what we're saying is that we are committed to searching for the lost, calling them to repentance, and offering them eternal life through the message of the gospel of who? Crucified risen, returning Savior. Confession. In conclusion. (laughs) The confession is I didn't write a conclusion this week because the week got away from me. But I did just do a wedding for one of my daughters. Struck us on the way home last night. Christy and I were talking about what we just experienced you know, marrying off your kids is a, it's an emotional thing every time, isn't it? For those of you that have done that. And, then, and for us, this is the daughter. This is Hope, for those of you that know her. This is the daughter. It's part of our blended family. So she has a biological dad, and I'm her other dad. <laughs> and uh, we both walked her down the aisle together. I'm bawling like a baby. You know, room is full of people. And, uh, my other son-in-law, Jordan. He's married to our daughter named Harley, if you know Harley. They have our, our first grandbaby. We have three total. And their son, their oldest son, Ezra, who, uh, um, that's our oldest grandbaby. He was one of the ring bearers. And by the time we got down to the end of the aisle, we're getting ready to hand Hope off to her soon-to-be husband, right? Jordan is standing right in the center, my other son-in-law. And ring bearer Ezra, his boy, my grandbaby, two years old. Jordan's doing the opening welcome, opening prayer, who's going to give the bride away. He's standing there, he's just, man, he just looks sharp, right? He's got his iPad. Here's little Ezra. Standing right there. Right in his daddy's shadow. And Jordan opens the ceremony and he begins to pray. And next to him, Ezra, just two years old. You never see a two-year-old stand still, right? Ezra, in his quiet little voice, his hands folded like this, I think. Quiet little voice begins to mimic his father. little voice is just going. He's mimicking like every, I mean, he can't say everything, but he's trying to mimic his dad's words. As soon as the prayer is over, same thing. He's like, oh, before we go any further, I've got to give this bride away. And little Ezra just standing there looking up at dad and look back forward and do the same thing. 
if you were to ask me, how do you do this? How do you value the gospel? How do you value the family? And how do you value the mission? My one answer would be, spend some time in the shadow of your father. Spend some time in the shadow of your father. And can I give you a, a short and brief description of your father? Your father in heaven, he's not angry at you if you've trusted in Jesus. He's not offended by you because of your sin. Because you're covered in Christ. Right? He's not distracted by somebody who's more important than you. He's not hiding out in the back room waiting for you to get your act together sometime. Your father's just waiting for you to come spend time with him. That's what he wants. He wants you because he loves you. The scriptures teach us that once we come to Jesus by faith, we're covered. Our sins have been cast as high as the heavens are above the earth. And as far as the east is from the west, it's an infinite amount of distance. And somebody said in a book that I think Christy and I read recently that when God throws those sins out in the ocean, he also puts up a no fishing sign. Which means you and I should not be going back and fishing for that anymore. It's gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The way that you value the gospel, the way that you value mission, the way that you value family is by spending time in the shadow of your Father who loves you, is for you, is with you, never leaves you, loves to put broken lives back together, loves to take people who are an absolute jacked up, filthy mess, and it's like, well, I've been following Jesus for 50 years or something. How to have this together by now? Who told you that? I ought to be past that kind of sin by now. Who told you that? Who questioned God's goodness and who questioned the gospel in your life to make you believe that? That's the root of legalism, not freedom. Spend time in your Father's shadow. That's my hope. Let me pray for us. Hey, Father, ask, Father, that you would come now and minister by the power of your Spirit in our hearts as we close. Help us to sit in your shadow. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.